0: Praise the Lord. Acts chapter 2. Everybody ready? We are in the middle of the Apostle Peter's message on the day of Pentecost to the Jews in Jerusalem, and it's a great word of the Lord. It's kind of the very first gospel message preached through anybody in the world. And uh, we're going to get into that passage in just a moment, starting in verse 22. But uh, how many of you know that kids believe amazing things sometimes? How many of you know kids believe crazy, amazing things? When I was a kid, uh, how many of you have ever heard of the movie, The Swiss Family Robinsons? Anybody? How many of you like that movie? Yeah. Yeah. That's the one Disney won't remake, and I think they should. It's a great movie. But anyway... Uh, I loved watching that movie when I was a kid. I loved, you know, things like Indiana Jones, the adventurer. You know, I always thought that'd be such, a, such an awesome life to be an archaeologist or to be shipwrecked in some island. Probably not as cool as Disney made it seem, right, in the Swiss family Robinson. But I lo- how many of you love their house? How many of you thought as, as a kid or a young person, you thought, man, that'd be amazing to live in the house and run around barefoot all the time, you play with lions and ostriches and whatever. Man, that'd be amazing. Well, I found out when I was about, uh, I don't know, eight, eight years old maybe, my mom and my grandparents took me to Disney World, and I got to, I got to go to the Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse. And I thought it was the actual one. <laughs> I'm like, wow, they like... Cut down the tree, brought it to Florida, and then replanted it so that we could have the tree. I mean, it was amazing. As that, looking through it as an eight year as an eight year old with eight year old eyes, how many of you know kids do that? They they see things like that and they think it's real and amazing. I remember uh, just a few. I'm telling myself a little bit. Just a few years ago, uh, there was a documentary that came out about mermaids being real. Did anybody watch this? It was weird, right? It was weird. <laughs> It's about mermaids being real. It was on like the discovery channel or the history channel or something like that. And I, I, I kid you not, I, it was about three quarters of the way through it before I went, oh, this is fake. <laughs> the whole time I'm like, this is this is legit. Like, <laughs> holy cow, mermaids are real. God, I didn't know that you made mermaids. I, I was not aware of that from the scriptures. No, it was, all, it was all fake, you know, Bigfoot. My kids love to talk about Bigfoot or the Sasquatch or the Yeti. Or Harry from the Harry and the Hendersons, whatever. Uh, we, you know, Eli loves watching Bigfoot shows, and Gabe too, uh, to see maybe they're real, maybe they're out there. And how many of you know that's a legend, right? Maybe it's true. Maybe it's true. You never know, right? Uh, you would think that as uh, adults we would grow out of things like that, but we really. We really kind of don't, uh, as I I tell on myself, we still believe sometimes ridiculous things. Did you know that there's a very large club called the Flat Earth Society who still believes that the earth is flat? And in their own tweet, they said their popularity is spreading around the globe. That's, that's not a joke. That actually happened. And that is spectacular, you know? There's still many men in this room who believe that there's something at the bottom of the money pit on Oak Island. How many of you are with me? Come on, Troy. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, There's a theory out there that birds aren't real, that they're animatronics created to spy on us. There are people that don't believe birds are real. For some unknown reason, in the last couple of weeks, I've noticed that the Inquirer has started showing up at my house. I don't know why this is, but it gives me great fodder for things that we shouldn't believe in, right? (laughs) We have conspiracies, theories galore. Now, let me say something to us Christians, okay? If you're a believer here, I just have to say this and I say it in love and I say it in kindness and I say it as a person who loves Conspiracy theories, I love them, they're interesting, I watch those TV shows, The Hidden Secrets of the USA, You know, I watch stuff like that, because it's interesting to me. But Christians are especially vulnerable to conspiracy theories, especially based on the end times, or based on new knowledge that no one else had, or hidden and secret knowledge. Can I say that kindly to us? We are especially vulnerable to that, okay? I'm still waiting for the harbingers to happen. Aren't you? I'm. St- <laughs> I'm still waiting for the blood moon to have whatever effect the blood moon was going to have on the world. And so, like Christians, fall into these traps that begin and, and hear me hear me carefully begin slowly to reduce our faith in Christ as our hope, and we put our faith and hope in the latest book by this prophet or that prophet or the latest sermon by this person or did you hear this thing that happened or whatever and i'm look i'm not saying we shouldn't listen to the prophets so i'm i believe in the prophetic if you come to prayer at nine o'clock but did you know we prayed at nine o'clock for passionate corporate i'm going to say every sunday every week until you people show up with the other hundred people that do come. Uh, Every Sunday during prayer, we give a moment, an opportunity for anybody who feels like God is speaking to them prophetically to share that. And it's a great place to learn. So I believe in the prophetic. I'm not saying we should dismiss these things. Here's the concern I have as a pastor, and just as a believer, sometimes those things reduce our faith and put our hope in something else besides Christ. So I don't wanna say that like faith is fragile, or that it's weak, but the reality is for a lot of people, their faith is fragile. It's based on things that do not provide a sustaining faith that will not only get you to whatever's coming at the end, but through eternity. It's not a faith that can sustain you or me to the, the very last end. In fact, all through Revelation, when uh, when Jesus is speaking to the seven churches of Revelation uh, through the prophet John, and John writes over and over, to you who endure to the end, to you who make it to the last last to you whose faith is strong enough and i'm paraphrasing but whose faith is strong enough to to get you to whatever the end is like there's something about having a robust strong faith in god and faith in whatever comes in the world whatever he sends to this world whatever the enemy brings to this world your faith is strong enough and powerful enough and meaningful enough to make it to the end how many of you want that kind of faith Amen. Well, a few of us. How many of you want that kind of faith? Like, seriously, how many of you say, I want that faith. I don't want to fall short. I don't want to fall short. Well, that's what we have here in the second part of Peter's message to the Jews. And it's interesting to me, look at verse 22. People of Israel, listen. Listen. Well, I should say it the way Peter said it. People of Israel, listen. Like, he has an urgency, okay? God publicly endorsed Jesus of Nazareth by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you know. Here's the first thing I want you to notice. Miracles, it's in your notes. Miracles, signs, and wonders didn't produce faith. I mean in some ways that's boggling to the mind, right? If you were with Jesus the day Lazarus, Lazarus got up and walked out of the tomb, you would think that would produce an abiding faith. If you were with Jesus the day that he was teaching in the house and the people opened the roof and lowered their friend and Jesus said get up and pick up your mat and go home, you would think that would produce an abiding faith. But Peter's really clear. The Lord did incredible miracles through Jesus while he walked the earth, incredible things that he did, but still the Jews, the Pharisees, the people that day did not believe in him. It's fascinating to me. From turning water into wine, to raising the dead, to healing the sick, to restoring people that have been broken for years, Jesus did some incredible things, but it did not cause this generation to believe in him. In fact, the Pharisees would get mad at Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath. How many of you remember things like that? I can't believe that you'd be like us saying, I can't believe that you raised somebody from the dead on a Sunday. How dare you? You know, that's stupid. They witnessed the miracles, the signs, the wonders that Jesus performed, but it did not move their faith. And here's the thing about us so many times in our lives, we're waiting. For God to do a sign, to do something to prove himself to us, to do something to show us that he's real, to show us that he can do these things, or that he's really there, or that he really cares for us, or whatever, and if he'll do those things, then we'll believe. I remember, uh, and I may have told this story, I'm getting old enough now where I don't remember what stories I told you, and it's only been a year, so good luck, right? (laughs) <laughs> Several years ago, as part of my master's project, I had to interview an unsaved person, and I interviewed a guy named Cliff, and uh, uh, and I and we we're talking and stuff, and I said, Cliff, ha, ha, would you say that in your life, just in your general life, do you see like the hand of God in your life? Do you see God? active in your life? Is he doing things in you and like in your family and whatever, whatever. I just, you know, trying to describe what I call the activity of God. And, and he, you know, he's not saved, not a believer, doesn't go to church, doesn't have faith in God in that way. None of those things. And he says to me, oh yeah, all the time. Oh yeah. God does all kinds of things in my life. He shows up, he starts crying. He shows up here and he's doing this and, you know, I see him here and whatever. And I, and I'm like befuddled that's a real word. I'm like befuddled. Like how can you say, or how can you see and identify and like actually experience all the goodness of God and the things that God is doing in your life and yet not let that forge in you faith? Because signs, wonders, and miracles don't produce faith. It didn't for Israel, and it doesn't for us. If you're waiting on God to give you a sign and do a miracle in your life, so that you will believe, you'll be waiting a long time. Number two, the second thing that I would say doesn't produce faith is fulfilled prophecy. And I'm going to just read a little bit of uh, verse 23 to 31. I'm not going to read the whole thing. You can read it on your own. He uh, says, "But God knew, God knew what would happen." How many of you know that God knows everything? Did you know that? Did you know that God sees your end from the beginning? Like, he sees it all. He knows what's going to happen. And in Jesus' life, in Jesus' whole purpose on the earth, he knew. And he says, and he prearranged a plan. His prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to the cross and killed him. I love how Peter just puts the tension in the room. You people killed Jesus. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him. Amen. And then he tells this prophecy of David that David wrote in Psalms about how that Jesus would be, or the Messiah would suffer and die and be in the grave, but the grave would not be able to hold him. And he's proving the point that God had planned from the very foundations of the earth, from the very beginning that Jesus would rise from the dead, that Jesus would not only die for our sins, but come back to life. The grave would not be able to hold him, and it's this prophetic thing. And I think that's my opinion. I think Peter, because he could have used, we said last week, 3 over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Christ. Over 300 of them. Peter could have used any of them. Why did he use David? Because he was talking to Jews. He was talking to the children, the descendants of King David, and in their mind, the Messiah was coming back to the earth to reestablish the Davidic kingdom and bring the glory days back to Israel. That's what the Messiah was going to do. So, so Peter, and this is so cool, Peter was a fisherman. He wasn't that smart. He wasn't, I should say, he wasn't that learned, Okay. The Bible tells us that. It's not like a secret. Oh, you've insulted Peter. No, it tells us he's just a fisherman, right? And in fact, all through the book of Acts, when the apostles preach under the power of the Holy Spirit, everybody says, how can these people talk like this? They're not learned. They didn't go to school. So I say that because Peter is talking about David under the inspiration or the anointing of the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus stands up and reads Isaiah. Isaiah. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor and to preach recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty them that are bruised to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. He reads this passage of prophecy from Isaiah about the Messiah and then he says something really interesting. He just, you know, he just, he just says it. He says, today this prophecy has been fulfilled in your ears. In other words, he's saying all the things that the Old Testament authors wrote about, they wrote about me. They wrote about me. They prophesied about me over and over. Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah. But they killed him. You see, the prophecies of the Messiah, the things that Jesus fulfilled in the lives and in his own life, was not enough to produce faith in the Jews. John chapter 1 says he came to that which was was his own he lived his life in front of the Jews. He lived his life in front of his own people, but they did not recognize him. They couldn't see him, even though all of scripture spoke about him. I like this quote from Jesus, from John chapter 5, and he's speaking to the religious people particularly. And listen carefully, my friends. You, Verse 39, John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. He's saying to the Pharisees, guys, there's another, I think it's the message says, you've got your head stuck in the book because you think in the book there is life. You think if you have enough understanding and knowledge about God, you think if you know his ways, if you understand how God works, if you have all the academic knowledge about Jesus and about the Father, then somehow that will produce faith. But Jesus says, you think there's life in there? But the scriptures point to me. He says, I'm standing right in front of you and you don't believe. See, there's this desire in humans to know things. You know, it's sad to me. I think that artificial intelligence, will, let's say it this way, we'll never know more about God or about Jesus like in the knowledge sphere, than artificial intelligence. Because it can search all the things, right? Knowledge is not enough. Some of you believe if you read your Bible, if you study some Bible classes, if you do some of the right things, if you go to connect groups, if you serve somewhere, if you do these things right, and, and you have the knowledge of the things of God, then that will be enough to produce faith. I just want you to know knowledge has never produced faith. Knowledge has never produced faith absent the knowledge of knowing the living and breathing word of God. Not just the written word, but the word of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You want knowledge? You want knowledge that transforms? You've got to know the word of God, Jesus Christ. You've got to know him, not about him. The world is full of people that know about God. Look, fulfilled prophecy, knowledge, if you will, about the things of the Lord will never produce faith. In fact, I would say it this way, and, and, and I, they used to say this to me a lot of times, Bible college is a great place to backslide. Bible college, why? Because knowledge puffs up. Knowledge brings Pride. Knowledge that is dead and just book work and book knowledge produces no life. You must have both knowledge and knowing the living Savior. You got to have both. Didn't produce life that they had knowledge. The third thing that didn't produce life is this the resurrection and appearances of Jesus didn't produce faith. He says this in verse 32 God raised Jesus from the dead. Okay, nice declaration. But look at that next phrase. We are all witnesses of this. There was sort of this understanding in that in that moment that these people, these people understood or had known or had seen or had heard rumors or whatever, but they understood that Jesus was risen from the dead. Peter's saying, we've seen him, we've experienced him. Many of you saw him. Many of you experienced the resurrected Christ. Now though, verse 33, he's exalted to the, right, to the highest place of honor in heaven, at God's right hand. And the Father, as he promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see today. Jesus showing up, walking into the room. Remember, doubting Thomas. Who refused to believe unless I did this, unless this takes place, unless I experience him, I will not believe. Jesus was gracious to Thomas. He appeared to him and let him put his hand in his side and touch where his wounds had been. And that's what caused Thomas to believe. But the Bible said, Jesus says this to Thomas in John 20:29: 20, Blessed are those who believe without ever seeing. I mean, I don't know about you, but there's not many people in this room or many people in the world that are alive today that have ever seen a resurrected Jesus. There are some Muslims that have. There are stories all over the world right now about Jesus appearing resurrected. They call him the man in white. He's appearing to Muslims and preaching the gospel and many are coming to Christ. Many are being saved through that, not through evangelistic efforts of the church, not through missionaries, because many where Muslims are, there are no missionaries. Jesus is like his own missionary. So there are some people in the world that have experienced that, but the vast majority of us have to believe having never seen him. And I want to say it this way. I want to break it down this way. Experiences with God or around God won't forge a lifelong faith. You can come to this altar. You can cry. You can have an emotional moment with God. You can get saved. You can turn your life over to the Lord. You can have incredible moments with God. But I just want you to know the experience only will not forge a lifelong faith. Experiencing God will not forge a lifelong faith. You know, do you know uh, next Saturday our kids will go to camp? And many of them, I know you're excited. Woo, but many of them, many of them. Listen to me, children. Your children. Your children. Many of you will have life-changing moments with God out of the altar. But if you don't let that moment turn into something more, it will only be an experience that over time you will lose. Because an experience with God is not enough to produce, produce faith, true faith is not based on your experiences with God. I would say instead, it's based on things with God that have not happened yet. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. Experiences with God will not produce a lifelong faith. So what does produce a lifelong faith? These last three points. What does produce a lifelong faith? Number four, anointed words of the Holy Spirit produces or produced faith. Anointed words of the Holy Spirit. Here's what it says in verse, verse 37. Peter's words pierced their hearts. Did you hear that? Peter's words per- pierced their hearts, and they said to him, brothers, what should we do? Now, this is not just a perfunctory question. Well, what do you want us to do then? This is a question with urgency. Oh, if we have crucified him. Oh, if it's our sin. Oh, if we've walked away from God. If we didn't recognize the Messiah, what do we do now? Is it too late? Have we missed our opportunity? That's what they're asking. What do we do? How do we fix this? How do we get back on the right pathway. Peter's convicting words, empowered by the Holy Spirit, brought the hearers that day to a point of decision. There's an urgency in their heart, and it comes with the word of God. Hebrews 4.12, here's the backup verse for you, written many years after this day, for the word of God is alive and powerful. Your word, the word of God is not dead. It's not, it's not words on a page. It's alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Why don't people like the word of God? Because it exposes their innermost thoughts and desires. Yeah. I don't want anybody to know my innermost thoughts and desires. I don't, I don't even want to know my own innermost thoughts and desires. I certainly don't want the Lord to know my innermost thoughts and desires, but the word of God exposes it. Why? If you read verse 13, it says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight, but everything is uncovered and laid bare. Why? Before the eyes of whom we will give account. Why does God expose it? Because he wants you to walk into heaven without sin in your life. He wants you to walk into heaven undivided. He wants you to walk into heaven having him on the throne of your heart and nothing else. Look, it's only the anointed word of the Lord that produces faith. I think the word of the Lord comes in two ways. It comes through our relationship with Jesus Christ, and it comes through the Bible. Really dissecting and diving deep into the word of God, not for the sake of knowledge, but for the sake of being transformed and those parts of our life being exposed to the word of God so that they can be changed. Anointed words of the Lord produces faith. Second thing, or the fifth thing, whichever, however you're counting, obedient action produces faith. Obedient action. Oh, you thought you could just come to church and like have a nice time and listen to the sermon and you know maybe read the Bible a little bit and that'd be good enough for you. No, no, no. God requires obedience, not sacrifice. I'd even say to you today, coming to church is sacrifice, not obedience. Serving in kids' ministry is sacrifice. Giving our tithe is sacrifice, it's obedience for a lot of people it's sacrifice. You know, does that make make sense? Sacrifice is easier than obedience. You know why? Because obedience requires all that you are. It requires not only the action, it requires a heart of obedience. It requires a heart desiring to serve the Lord. So here's what Peter says. They said, what should we do? Peter said, I'm glad you asked. I've got the answer. Each of you must repent of your sin And turn to God. And be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter tells them to do three things. And these are the same things for us. First, repent of your sin. It's confession. It's turning away from sin. And a sinful lifestyle. It's not enough to just ask for forgiveness. But to turn away from sin. Surrendering. Surrendering your life to Christ. He says repent, then he says turn to God. You've got to turn to God, not to the other things of the world, not to figuring out your life. You've got to turn to God. You turn away from sin and you turn towards Jesus. If you turn away from sin towards anything else, you will again find yourself entangled in sin. Let me say this to our Christian selves. If you turn away from sin and turn to the book that somebody told you would help you, you'll find yourself back in sin. If you turn away from sin and turn yourself into some other kind of preacher, some ministry, or something out there, and not turn to Christ, you'll find yourself back in sin. Why? Because knowledge and practice is not transformational. Let me, t- let me give you an example from my own life. Long time, for a long time, I struggled with insecurity and fear. And people don't believe me when I say that I'm by nature insecure. But I've battled a lot of insecurity in my life. And, I, and it affected my life and my ministry and just whatever. And I really battled it. Sometimes I still do. And I read a great book called Overcoming the Dark Side of Leadership. And I went, ah, oh, this is what's wrong with me. Everybody ever read a book that went, oh, this is what's wrong with me. Well, I understood what was wrong with me. I even began to dive into my life and dive into my past and figure out why it happened or why I'm like the way I'm, where it came from, what this this whole thing is about. What, What I had was knowledge. I didn't have transformation. It took another seven years of processing with the Holy Spirit before I came to a place where I felt like I was mostly transformed by the power of God and I wasn't bound by the things that bound me before, but it wasn't knowledge that got me there. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. It was the work of God in my life. It was the obedience to him to not only repent of those things, but to turn to God and allow him to be the Lord of my life. The third thing Peter says to do is to be baptized. Now, some denominations have taken this very verse and twisted it to mean that unless you are baptized, you are not saved. Like that's part of it. Being baptized in water is part of being saved. Here's the problem with that. It's not supported anywhere else in scripture. So that means Peter speaking to the Jew. In other words, other places in scripture, it says, repent of your sins. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Anybody ever heard that before? Confess your sins uh, to the Lord and he will, he will save you. Like that's all, that's in Romans, that's in other parts of, the, of scripture. So that's not what Peter was saying. He's talking to a Jewish audience who, you know, baptism is a very Jewish thing. There's almost no other culture in the world that does baptism like the Jews do. So you would, in, in the first century, whoever you were going to follow, if you were going to, if you, you know, you, if you read in the New Testament, it talks about John's baptism, right? In fact, uh, Acts chapter 19, Paul shows up at Ephesus and he says, brothers, have you, have you heard of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And they said, no, we're only acquainted with John's baptism. We only know John's baptism. Okay, so what would happen is if you wanted to follow John the Baptist, you would be baptized, dunked in the water, and you would come up and say, I'm now a follower, a disciple of John. So when Jesus began to baptize people, you remember how John's disciples were jealous because Jesus was baptizing people into following Jesus. That's what Peter's talking about. Same thing. Jesus baptized people And Peter's saying, look, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, be baptized. Now, I want to say to you, I don't believe that it lets believers, Christians, Gentiles, or Jews off the hook for obeying Christ towards baptism. I think if you are a saved person, and you've known the Lord, and you're walking with God, and you've never been baptized in water, you ought to be baptized in water. You ought to go ahead and take the plunge, and we're doing it in just a few weeks. You can sign up to be baptized. Why? What's the result of the steps of obedience? It says this, if you'll repent, if you'll turn to God, if you'll be baptized, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's a powerful thought. There's two ways we receive the Holy Spirit. One, we receive the Holy Spirit at the moment we're saved. When you say, you know, we say it to kids, Jesus, come into my heart and forgive my sins. I just want you to know it's not Jesus that comes into your heart. He's, on the right, he's at the right hand of God. Did you know Jesus isn't in the earth today? He's at the right hand of God interceding for you. The part of the Godhead that's in the earth is the Holy Spirit. And when you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's the Holy Spirit who takes up residence in your life, takes up residence in your spirit and in your heart, and you begin to walk and live uh, in relationship with Christ and God the Father through the Holy Spirit. Read John chapters 13 to 16, and you'll you'll understand all the work that the Holy Spirit does for us. But there's a second baptism, a second gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not that he's not in you until you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's just that that's the moment that you overflow with the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? So I, let, me, let me explain it a different way. This is why many believers who do not believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit the way a Pentecostal person would are, are often great Christians. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's in them. He's just not overflowing in them through the baptism of the Holy Spirit like he can if you allow him. Does that make sense? Kind of? Okay. He's in you. He wants to overflow in you. And Peter says, look, if we'll do these things, he'll live in us. The last thing that produces faith, according to Peter, it's anointed word of God, obedient action, and lastly, the promise of generational transformation. The promise of generational transformation. Look what it says. The promise is to you. Hey, you can have this, but it's also to your children and to anyone who are far away, and what he means, those who are in generations to come, future generations, and he means people all around the world. Anybody who's afar off, anyone, all who have been called by the Lord our God, and Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourself from this crooked generation. What an incredible promise. Now, rhetorically, I don't want you to answer the question, I just want you to think. How many of you at some point in your life as adults, decided when I grow up, I'm not going to live the way my parents lived. I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to be a different kind of parent. I'm going to be a different kind of spouse. I'm going to do things differently. My parents were broken or my, in my family tree, there's brokenness, there's divorce, there's addiction, there's, you know, fill in the blank of those things. And I'm going to live differently. Can I just say what you do when you make a decision to follow Jesus is you begin to rewrite your family tree. You begin to reorient. I love the story of my grandfather being saved on New Year's Eve, 1949. He was a drunken sailor. And I mean that not in the hyperbole. He was literally a drunken sailor who who, uh, reveled in life and did the things he wanted to do all the time, uh, just like his father did, just like his grandfather did. There was a generational thing going on in his life, but on a New Year's Eve service in 1949, he went to church with my great-grandmother, with his mother, my great-grandmother. She was a believer and loved the Lord and prayed for her sons and her daughters And that night, my grandfather got up from his seat at the close of the service, and he walked to the altar, and he gave his heart to Christ. He did not just have an experience with God. He transformed. And I just want you to know, my family tree has never been the same. You know why? It just takes one generation to make a decision to change the family tree for future generations. The Bible says in the Old Testament, whatever you believe about Old Testament, it says the sins of the Father follow the children to the third generation. And if you'll look in your life, you'll see patterns like that. But the blessings of God follow the righteous generation for a hundred generations. A hundred generations. What an incredible promise! You know, I thought to myself, look, because of what, I, and I often think about what my grandfather did, and if I tell you the whole story, my other, the other side of my family, the, my other grandparents did the very same thing uh, at a tent camp meeting service. They left the camp meeting service, and I didn't even know the story until I was about 30. They left the camp meeting service and was, dr- were driving home, and they get about, you know, a mile from home, and my grandpa looks at my grandma, and my grandma looks at my grandpa, and my grandma goes, we ought to go back, shouldn't we? And he says, yes, I think we should. They turn the car around, they go back, they find the preacher, and they give the heart to the Lord, and everything changes. Everything changes. And I'm I'm just saying, if you want that for your children and your grandchildren... And your great grandchildren. If you want, you know, I I love it. I don't, my grandfather has great grandchildren, he's dead, he's in heaven, both of them, and they have great grandchildren, no great great grandchildren yet, but all their great grandchildren are serving the Lord. That's incredible. They're serving the Lord, they're honoring the Lord. Why? Because the promise is to you and your children, to all who are afar off, and if we'll let God change us, He'll change them. Those who believed that day. The first altar call given and 3,000 people respond. Can I just tell you from 120 to 3,000 is a 2,500% increase in one day. There's not a church in the world that could handle that kind of growth. And I'm not sure that the apostles knew what to do with that imagine what they had now had to figure out as these young men and women full of the Holy Spirit began to speak the anointed and convicting word of God, and people began to believe there were no listen, there were no gimmicks, there was no watering down the gospel, there was not an attractional style of ministry, they didn't have fog machines and sound systems, they just had the word of God and anointed flesh. That's all it took. I just want you to know that's all it takes. That's all it takes. It doesn't take a master's degree in theology for you to share your faith with somebody. It doesn't take a full understanding of the ways of God for you to believe for yourself and for future generations. So what about you? What is your faith like today? Is your faith based on a knowledge of God? Is it based on some experience from long ago? Or have you decided to forge a faith that will sustain you through your life until you arrive on the other side of eternity? Have you repented? Have you turned from sin? Have you fixed your eyes on Jesus? You know what I've discovered in my years of ministry? Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people repent. Almost as many will turn from their sin. But few of us actually fix our eyes on Jesus. Few of us actually allow our lives to be defined by the Christ that we serve. But if we'll fix our eyes on Jesus, he will change us. He will transform us. He will rework our family tree. So I'll say it again. I said it last week. I'll say it again. Now is not the time to be playing games with your faith. Friends, things are happening around the world. And again, it's not harbingers or blood moons. Things are happening to bring back and uh, quickly bring back the end times and the things of God. More, I feel it more than I've ever felt it in my lifetime. My grandpa used to say all the time, I believe I'm gonna see Jesus come before I die. He didn't. But I think I'm gonna see Jesus come before I die. And I wanna have a faith that sustains me through whatever will come. Now is not the time to be playing game with your games with your faith. Now is the time to dig in forge a sustaining, vibrant, living faith that will get you to the end. He who endures to the end will be saved. So what should I do? It's what they asked Peter. What should I do? First, make peace with God. If you don't have peace with God, today's your day. Make peace with God. Two, move beyond knowledge and experience. Stop living in the past. Stop living in the great revivals of your past. Stop doing the things that you always always have done. Live in a fresh revelation of Jesus. Move beyond knowledge. Three, know the living, breathing word of God. And last, determine to lead the next generation in the things of the Lord. You know, if we want the next generation to know God, we're gonna to have to know God. If you want the next generation, listen adults, if you want the next generation to be passionate worshipers, you need to be a passionate worshiper. I feel like that hit like a ton of bricks. <laughs> if you want the next generation to be passionate worshipers, you gotta be a passionate worshiper. You want them to know how to pray? Call. Don't you think that's important to know how to call on God? Man, if you want them to know how to call God, you better learn how to pray. You better learn how to call on the Lord. You better learn how to get through the difficult things in life with the power of the Holy Spirit in you. If we want them to know, we're going to have to demonstrate it before them, or they won't know. Jesus, thank you for this challenging word from Peter. Thank you for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that challenges us not only to repent, but to turn from our sin, to turn to the Lord, to be baptized, God, and to be filled with the Spirit. Lord, I just pray that you would help us and strengthen us and forge in us, God, the desires. Lord, to do those steps, Lord, to repent, to make peace with you, to move beyond our knowledge and experience. It's not enough of how we've lived or where we've lived. We need fresh revelation of God, fresh revelation of Jesus. Help us to know him, to know the living, breathing word of the Lord, the written word of the Lord, but the breathing, living word of God that challenges our heart. And God, help us to lead the next generation in the things of the Lord. Let us not stand behind them. Let us not hope they get it by osmosis. Let us not hope they pick it up at camp and convention. Let us not hope they randomly get it because of the youth leaders, God. Let us demonstrate it for for ourselves and show them how to have faith. Show them how to believe. Show them how to be sustained. In Jesus' name, heads bowed and eyes closed. I wanna, really, I wanna hit on that one. If you're here today and you need to make peace with God, this is your moment, make peace with God. Stop playing games. I say with loving kindness, stop playing games. Stop being wishy-washy, stop hemming, hemming and hawing back and forth, I'll say it as Joshua said it, choose you this day whom you're gonna serve and stick with it. But I believe this, and I just wanna pray a prayer. If you're here today and you say, you know what, I want the next generation and maybe that third generation. I want them to know the Lord. I want them to understand the things of God. I want them to, to know how to pray, to know how to worship, to know how to call on the Lord when things are rough. I want them to, to have a sustaining faith that gets them all the way through to the end. If that's you, and you say, that's what I want. And I want the Holy Spirit to help me do it. I want the Holy Spirit to help me demonstrate it, not only for my kids and my grandkids, but the kids in this church and the little ones all the way down to the nursery. I want them to see and experience. Experience and sense the presence of God through my life. If that's you, you believe that, you want that in your life and you're willing for the Lord to do that through you, I want you to stand to your feet all over this room. Come on, stand to your feet all over this room. You want to be the example to know how to have a sustaining faith. Come on, stand to your feet. If that's you, all over the room, come on moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, aunts and uncles, people that have no kids but you love the kids in this church, you want to be the example to them. Would you lift your hands all over the room? And I want you to ask the Lord to help you right now. Lord, would you help me, God? When I'm depressed and I'm discouraged, would you help me to lift my countenance to the Lord? Lord, when I'm struggling with faith, would you let me put my faith in you in a more powerful way? God, would you let me become a passionate worshiper? Would you teach me how to be a man or a woman of prayer? Would you teach me how to call upon your name? Would you teach me how to not be wishy-washy? Would you help me, Lord, learn how to turn my back on sin and embrace the cross? Fix my eyes on Jesus and nothing else. God, show me how to transform the 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 family tree, God. The generation after generation would know you in a powerful way. God, I pray in Jesus' mighty name that you do this work in me right now. Come on, receive that from the Lord. Holy Spirit, download into us whatever we need to hear, whatever we need to change, whatever we need to shift, whatever needs to make waves in our life. Lord, I pray that you'd show us how to do it right now in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Come on, ask the Holy Spirit that question. What do I need to do to make sure I have sustaining faith and that I can pass that faith on to the next generation? Help me God, help me God. Help us, God. Help Connection Point, God. Help us, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus. 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 Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Here's what I think. I think the Lord is going to download some things into your heart. He's going to speak some things to you that he wants you to lead or to work on or to demonstrate so the next generation will know the Lord. And when he does, my challenge, my encouragement is be obedient. Remember what it said? Obedience produces faith. Obedience, swift obedience to the things of God. So whatever he tells you to do, do it. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. With his power. And I I go back to that. Man, Peter could have got up in his flesh and said a lot of things to those people. But because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit, he spoke the word of God and it transformed 3,000 families. Think about that. 3,000 families were changed that day. Let that be us. Amen? Amen? Let that be us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.